And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are live from the bunker. Deep underground, beneath world headquarters here at Sci-Fi For Me. My name is Jason Hutt. I'm the editor-in-chief. We are back from our break. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being here. We do appreciate all of you. Uh, being here on a regular basis, even if you're on here on a semi-regular basis. We do appreciate everyone who shows up. The chat's open. You can leave a comment. You can send us an email. We have listeners worldwide. So if you are listening on a podcast version of this show, there's plenty of places where you can find us. Uh, Amazon, iHeart, Stitcher, Listen Notes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, TuneIn. You can get an RSS feed and uh, pull us in that way. Whatever floats your boat, as they say. We took a few days off last week. We're back and fully loaded. But I, I, we have a newsletter. We've got all the socials. And speaking of a newsletter... I had a, an email that I got from Podcast Movement, which is a, a, a piece that uh, we get every now and again talking about various different things in the podcast industry. And one of those things really, 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 really bothers me because this person here, and I look, before, before we do this, this is my disclaimer, do not contact anybody that we talk about here. But this particular person here expresses the, the surprise Quote, today I learned radio producers used to cut tape with razor blades. I have absolutely no idea how that would work, especially if your editor wanted you to put something back in. All right. <laughs> On the surface of this, I'm thinking, um, yeah, we did it all the time. I, I grew up in the industry when we had razor blades to cut tape and stuff. But then I look and see who this person is. And this person is a, very, is, is, is a child. Um, and I can understand this is part of that whole, you know, the uh, nothing happened before I was born history majors. So it's it's one of those things I have to give her a little bit of leeway, but not that much, because this is how we get people continuing to try to get socialism to work because they don't understand history and that it doesn't work. So there we are. I. Uh, uh, anyway, all right. So, uh, so let's bring in. You hear them in the background there. Dan Danford, Matt Stevens here for our Mad Money Monday. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey there. Glad to be here. So uh, this is going to be a, a regular thing. We're going to try this first Monday of the month. We're going to sit and we're going to take a look at some various different financial things uh, that are related to the uh, the the show business. We'll look at that at the business side of things. Uh, Matt is an independent uh, advisor, and Dan is the CEO founder of the Fa Family Investment Center. Uh, both here in the in the Kansas City area, and we do uh, appreciate it when they come back in and give us their insights because they know more about this stuff than I do. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just kind of sit and and think, okay, well, um, I'll let them I'll let them talk, and I'll just I'll just kick the ball around and see what happens. Let's uh, let's follow up because the last time you guys were on here, we were talking about Viacom CBS. And this is the six-month chart on their stock. It's now sitting here at $40.08 a share. And it looks like it's stabilized somewhat from its very precipitous fall from March. Uh, it topped out at $100.34 and then just dropped like a rock over, over a period of just, what, four days, five days. And it looks like it might be getting a little bit more stable stable, a little more steady. I mean, I don't know. It's it's sitting right now at 40. 
I don't know. Do, how does this look to you guys? It, the stock looks like it's probably in the area where it should have been all along. Uh, to bring the viewers back up to speed, it was ran up because one, well, several private family offices, which is essentially a private uh, mutual fund ran by one particular family, entered into contracts where they could acquire large chunks of the stock without registering any ownership whatsoever. They basically, at the end of every day, would pay the company. Dan, am I correct on this? They would pay the company the amount it went up or down. And yeah. I, received it. Yeah. And it just ran up and up and up until one day it didn't. And they were they were able to uh, borrow a lot of money to leverage it. So they actually, you know, were buying more shares. I mean, it was multiplied by the fact that they had all this leverage involved. And when it started coming apart, um, the opposite happens. I mean, the, the, the losses are magnified as well. So and all of that is more based on supply and demand than on the economic value of the company. And I think what we're seeing now is it's probably closer to the true economic value of the company based on, you know, projected earnings, projected growth, all those kinds of things. The other was kind of an anomaly that was that was false because of uh, the actions of uh, of one or two groups in the marketplace. It's, it's a reality that if a group of people get together to buy one stock, um, they can if they have enough money, they can force it to go up and up and up and there is a limit because at some point you have to find somebody else to buy it and if your buddies aren't buying it then well it does not end well it seems to me too that there's you mentioned this this family group and and there was a name in all of that and i can't remember right off the top of my head archegos yes it sounds it I've seen his name crop up in a couple of other places yeah. with regard to this kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe uh, maybe that's worth uh, a conversation in and of itself at some point to take a look at those kind of strategies. Because, Matt, you were talking about this whole shortlisting idea, this concept of, of shorting stocks. I think maybe if we... Uh, if we if we don't have any other things blowing up at us, maybe that's our next conversation because it it confuses me. I mean, I can understand the basic concept of it, but I don't understand why anybody would do it. So it's it's it Shorting seems like stock. yeah, it seems like it's an awfully big risk. Well, it's if you think a stock is going down, it could be a legitimate strategy if you think the stock is truly overvalued yeah. and uh, you don't have any stock to sell. I, it, there could be a legitimate place for it. Uh, some people would argue that there is or isn't. Yeah, but and it, I it's a that, legitimate strategy. A lot of these things, though, the derivatives and all the kinds of little market shenanigans, they may have a place in the market, but they aren't the market. Uh, and I tell people all the time, you know, well, they'll see somebody on TV pitching gold, you know, and they'll say, I need to buy gold. I mean, that's a big thing. Well, what the guy on TV doesn't tell you is that, you know, he has 3% of his portfolio in gold. Yeah. I mean, it makes it sound like he's pouring everything in. But and And people, you know, they don't know that. So they think he's saying put everything in gold, you know, right. and that may not work very well if you do it like that. So I think it's important to understand that lots of times, you know, these these things that have huge impact on the marketplace, they may have been one person's sliver of what they had, kind of, and it just drives, it, it, it. it's disproportionate in what happens in the market. Right. Well, now, the, the other part of that, you look at um, another stock that I, I've kind of been uh, curious about is is Disney uh, because it doesn't it it seems like Disney's facing a little bit of an uphill battle as well because you know they've just reopened their parks um, we've got some rides are available and some attractions are not and their stock uh, is way down. 
and I don't know, is this, do you think this is a result of all of their attractions having been closed for so long? Or could this be also connected to the various PR woes that they've been dealing with the last three or four months with the Gina Carano thing and the blowback on, you know, what we keep, you know, the High Republic and all of these other things that we keep finding out is just more of a mess over there than we originally assumed. Well, I, I mean, I, first of all, I don't follow individual stocks that closely. So what I'm talking about here is more general statements than a reflection on Disney itself. But um, usually the stock price reflects um, kind of the aggregate belief about how profitable the company is going to be, how much it's going to grow, what the expectations are as you look forward. Okay, so the fact that it has been closed, the theme parks have been closed, the facts that uh, certain things in the economy probably um, are not as favorable as they were before has driven down people's expectations, which also means the stock doesn't mean it's not a good company, doesn't mean the stock's not good. It just means for right now, the cumulative um, I guess, estimate by all investors is that it's worth uh, less than it was a while back. Well, does does the PR stuff have an impact on stuff like that, though? I mean, because right sure. now, the latest, the latest thing is the Snow White thing. That apparently has come out here just today where you know you have the you have the attractions are out and now you've got the 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 animatronics or wherever you go through the ride where you can see you know snow white and the seven dwarfs and she couldn't give consent to the kiss and it's it, you know i'm like oh, hold hold it why are we it just it boggles my mind what people find to be offended by but you have those things now you have yep. uh you have the the um, oh, where did I find it here? The Star Wars uh, account dropping this image. Um, when was this? April 29th. So this would have been what Wednesday or Thursday last week. Uh, and the image here that they've posted is not inclusive of the sequel trilogy, and there are people getting offended over that. And how dare they? Uh, how 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 could they leave off Ray and how could they leave off Finn and Poe? And people are sitting there going, you know what Disney did to John Boyega, right? You know, and it's, and it's this kind of blowback This is right before, cause May the 4th is tomorrow. Tomorrow is star Wars day to a lot of fans. Uh, even though it's really May 25th, but you know, May the 4th and, and people make a big deal out of this. And we're getting a, we're getting a brand new animated series tomorrow with the premiere of bad batch. All of this hype and, and, and this, except people are upset about this image. People are upset about the Snow White thing. There's still blowback on Gina Carano's situation. It, it doesn't seem like Disney can really make any kind of a good move here. Well, one thing, uh, I don't know how much of a factor this is playing in. I don't know how they thought their online streaming was going to go, but uh, that's that's an avenue that's probably taken up a lot of the, a lot of the publicity going, going forward. And, uh, you know, and how comfortable are people going to be going to the parks with the, the virus out there now? Yeah. I know Florida is pretty much open, but I don't know if they have any, if Disney has self-imposed any kind of, um, social distancing rules. I'm sure California's think- Anaheim's probably not doing well at all. Yeah. I think both parks, uh, if I remember right, I think both parks are, still doing masks, social distancing, and that sort of thing. I know I know, with Florida being wide open, but California's not. But um, I don't know that for sure. But I'm, I'm fairly certain that they're, that they're asking for masks at both parks. But I bet you they're, if they're going to get mad because uh, of the Snow White kiss, I mean, there's you <laughs> could find something offensive in every everyone. I mean, and to take uh, a bunch of dwarfs and give them – uh, offending names, yeah. basically based on their physical. Well, I'm sure that's coming. That's I'm, I'm sure that's so. coming. Yeah. yeah, 
But I mean, but in general, how does this impact when you're looking at financials, you're looking at, at stock, you're looking at profit projections and that sort of thing. PR really does play into this, but how much does it, does it really matter? So I'd say part of it is it depends on who, um, you know, the PR on this may be big in certain segments of the population, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's universal. I think things that are universal will have an impact. I think things that are specialized may not have much impact. I think what has the most impact is people looking at the numbers, you know, those analysts. But I, I don't think people understand, investors in general understand that two highly qualified analysts can look at the same set of numbers and come up with different projections about what's going to happen. Sure. So even among people who have, you know, a high level of expertise, there's a lot of interpretation that goes into making um, um, estimates or guesses about what's going to happen with a stock going forward. And I think what Matt's point earlier, which makes perfect sense, is if, if you were looking at Disney's projections today, you know, you would have to think that the theme parks, you know, that that isn't real good going forward in the next year or two. Yeah. And, you know, they've, they've taken a lot of abuse over, you know, some of their historical properties, their, their, their movies and stuff, uh, not being suitable for today's environment. So that's another thing. Um, and I would think that primarily, um, as an investor, what you'd be looking at are those income streams from the streaming and stuff. You, that's that's where you'd be saying, you know, this is where they're really going to excel going forward. Mm. And so the stock price is probably a reflection on those things more than it is the headlines in the newspaper. That would be my guess. Um, some of those things may be completely valid. And if they take hold in the entire population, they may have a big impact. But just among certain groups, I doubt that it has that much impact today. Well, what about with investors? Because investors yeah. read the news, they read the newspapers, they read the trades, they look at the, you know they it's look true. at stuff like Forbes, and everybody's everybody's paying attention to Twitter probably more so than they should, and that seems to be where all of the tastemakers and 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 stuff is going on. And they're looking and they're like, hey, what's going on with Disney? And they see all of this all of this controversy and blowback. Well, maybe I want to get rid of my stock. Does, it, does that because you're talking about the financial, the you know, the financial investor guys looking at these things? Well, now we have whether they're day traders or they're or, you know people who've got you know tons of shares of stock. They're looking what's going on out in the public on the public facing side of this. Disney seems to be making quite a few critical errors in judgment. I would guess. I would think all of these things are really won't add up to that much in as far as hurting future revenues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm sure they've, they'll have their PR people come out and try and fix some of the issues. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's going on is they have a lot of competition. Netflix last year yeah. made 120 films. Mm. I mean, that's, well, they just, films. It, it, I think that's a lot of competition. Netflix and also had the the uh, the best picture this year was a Netflix film, wasn't Netflix it? Netflix or Hulu of uh, the was, was that Nomadland? Nomadland, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hulu did that, and I mean, where would Hulu come from? Oh, right. Yeah. But well, Hulu, but Hulu is partially owned by Disney. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. All right, there you go. See, I did not know. That. Yeah. Well, just and that's, that's just like. That's why I uh, listened in to these shows. <laughs> I well, learned something. That's so. like uh, 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 Chloe Zhao, who won for Best Director, um, who is directing the Eternals for Marvel, and she's been outspoken as a critic as a critic of the Chinese government. But mm-hmm. and now all of these companies, Disney especially, has taken hits over their relationship with with China, and now you've got them dropping all of this Marvel stuff today just before May the 4th, when everything should be all about Bad Batch. But no, we're going to give you, we're going to give you all of this stuff, all of these new dates for all these Marvel movies to talk about. It, it, it seems like their strategy is, you know, look at this hand over here, not this hand over here. You know, it's, it, it's, it's crazy what their strategy is. I, I don't, 
I don't understand why they would drop all of this Marvel stuff today. Except we get to talk about Marvel, which so far has not made very many missteps, as opposed to talking about Star Wars, which is so polarizing now with fans. Uh, by the way, Christopher Hoffman, uh, one of our contributors, he said Disneyland is currently open for 25% capacity. So that will have an impact, too, how many people they let into the parks. And I, I think not all the rides are open either. So, Yeah, some of the attractions are, are not, not 25%. That's good to know. I, I think, you know, scale plays into it, too, you know, and that's something that it's real hard for an individual investor to look at. And that is, you know, while Marvel may be doing great and Disney not doing so great in the public's eye, Disney may be, you know, 50 or 100 times larger than Marvel. You know, th- those are the kinds of things. That, so, I, you know, what I tell people all the time is about investing, and this applies to almost everything, is, you know, your favorite products may be great products for you, but that doesn't mean they're a great stock to own. Yeah. You know, it, there, there's a difference between the quality of the product and how well the business operates. If you're an investor, what you're really looking for is a business that operates really well and generates lots of profits. There are tons of cases of, of, of businesses that you know, have a good reputation, they have a good quality product, et cetera, et cetera, but they can't make any money yet. You know? And that's not near as appealing for an investor as something with maybe less luster and more profits. You know, for those of us who are just kind of sitting back and, and engaging in the culture without studying all those things, it's pretty hard to know which ones are the winners and which ones are the losers. Disney started their streaming service less than a year ago, and they're at uh, Netflix has 200 and I believe 205 million mm-hmm. subscribers. Disney is already up to 137 million in short time. Yeah. Yeah, and so they will probably be as big as Netflix soon. And that is, that money, if you retain those people, it's straight to the bottom line. Especially sure. since you're already, you, are, you are already making movies that people want to see. You have a big library and that you can probably prevent them from going to Netflix and so people won't have to go. Well, that's just like uh, the deal uh, that Sony made with Disney Plus here, uh, was it last week, the week before last? Uh, where the the Sony Marvel films will actually now uh, be able to go over to the Disney Plus service uh, as opposed to Netflix or wherever it was that it was before. Uh, so on the one hand, yay, that puts all the Marvel stuff in one place with uh, with one streaming channel. So yes, from a marketing standpoint, buy the you know get this one channel and and you get everything. Um, but are we? Are we getting to the monopoly point yet where one is going to dominate and the rest of them are not? Because you look at what's going on with Paramount Plus, they're struggling. You have uh, HBO Max, and we'll get into that here in a little bit with Justice League stuff. But the HBO Max, they're projecting $100 million, I think, by 2025. And I'm thinking you guys are going to be so far behind the curve on that one. Even <laughs> if you get a hundred, it's not going to matter because by 2025, where where are Disney Plus and Netflix going to be in comparison? So, but and and I'm not again. I'm this is general statement, but a hundred million at 25 or 20 bucks a month. You know that that is a huge. I mean, even if you're a niche player. You're still generating an awful lot of revenue. The question is, is it profitable revenue? You know, so it's possible that a smaller company that doesn't have the volume can end up being a really profitable. So, I, you know, I, by just looking at the revenue numbers, we don't know very much. Well, Amazon makes so much money on their prime. I mean, of course, they have. Right. They probably have 100 million members. They almost don't categorize them the same because their viewership is uh, tied to the the delivery. Well, in the but, HBO uh, Max stuff, you know, some of some, some of the people yeah. who get HBO Max is part of their HBO subscription. So, right. those are piggybacks and they're they're not even they're not even paying for HBO Max. They're paying for HBO and they get HBO Max, you know, gratis. 
So that's not even a profit. I mean, that's almost almost a loss leader, I would think, for them on on that. But but hey, we we're going to have a hundred million subscribers by twenty twenty five. And one thing for these streaming services, and you're starting to see it now, they're they're slipping advertising in. Yeah. And, uh, well, well, and and HBO Max is going to have a ten dollar a month tier where it'll be ad supported. It'll be cheaper, but right. you know you're not paying fifteen a month, but you'll be paying ten a month. You get ads. So that right. hasn't even rolled out yet. But you talk but, about you talk about the debt and and that kind of thing because you, I, I want to circle back to another another piece on Disney here in a minute. But you mentioned that AT and T. I I was surprised. Their stock is at thirty one dollars. I figured that AT and T stock would be much higher than this for whatever reason. I don't know why I thought that way, but you figure how much debt they took on when they bought Time Warner, and HBO Max has got to be their this is this is their goose. They hope lays the golden egg. In terms of you know that kind of revenue stream, they're looking at Disney, they're looking at Netflix, and they're looking at Hulu. They're thinking, "Hey, we can make bank here." Except, it doesn't seem like. I mean, they're not in as many territories as they need to be, for one. Uh, but they're also kind of late to the game, and this whole day and date with all of these movies, the Warner Brothers movie library, that was all of the stuff that was supposed to hit theaters this year, going to HBO Max at the same day, or, yeah, going to the HBO Max the same day, there are a lot of people that are upset about that, too. You talk about the PR blowback on that. Warner Brothers, you've got some major players, Christopher... Christopher Nolan... Very outspoken against that move. He's he's basically saying HBO Max is the worst streaming service out of all of them. I mean, he's been he's he's not pulling any punches. He thinks it's a bad idea, and you know, you look at all of the moves that AT and T has made to divest themselves of things like Dish Dish TV, for example, where it's you know this is not a money maker. And Dan, you were talking about this. How many of our properties? How many of our elements? are making money and we get rid of the ones that are not making money. And that's one of the reasons why people are thinking that at some point, maybe they sell DC comics because DC comics isn't making any money. Or, you know, yeah. So uh, as a business owner um, or the management of a, of a, a, you know, a publicly traded company, you're always looking at the individual segments of that company. So, you know, with DC comics, it may be, you know, we sell it off to somebody else and bring the cash in-house and use it for something else. Or we may say, hey, is there a better way to manage this so that we do make money from it? Mm-hmm. And of course, if you do sell it, those people are going to look at it and say, what changes can be made so that we can make money at it? So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and uh, we don't see them all. We yeah. just see, you know, parts of them. Um it's it's astounding how many times like if they spun off say they say they did want to sell off dc comics one of the logical groups of buyers would be the people who are already managing it that's what happens all the time and they may look at it and say well you know we haven't done very well with this remote ownership but if we owned it ourselves we could do better with it kind of thing i mean that kind of stuff happens all the time and we just aren't privy to all the details right well, and that's and that's something that got mentioned uh, to circle back to the Disney thing with the right. royalties payments. Uh, this story broke in November is when we first found out about it. Alan Dean Foster, an author who has done a number of novelizations of different right. movies, comes out, says, hey, I haven't been paid. Uh, he's got the three, you know, the first three films in the Alien franchise he did the novelizations of. And as they're investigating that, it turns out he wasn't getting his royalties for his novelization of Star Wars or Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And at the time when all of this came public, the uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, their grievance committee, normally handles this stuff in the background. But Disney was being so intractable on this stuff because according to their interpretation of things, we bought the company... But we didn't buy any of the contractual obligations because the the Alien movies, for example, were published by Warner Books. 
which doesn't exist anymore because it got folded into something else. And then the you've got the Star Wars comic book license and the Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic book license being pulled from Dark Horse Comics in various different places, Boom Studios and whatnot. And, you know, now the Star Wars title is over at Marvel Comics, which is owned by Disney. So it's a completely different legal entity that has the rights and yada, yada, yada. So we don't need to pay you because our contract doesn't include your stuff. And this apparently has turned into a really big piece. We got a, we got an email from SIFWA earlier this week. They've organized now with the authors guild, the horror writers association, the national writers union, novelists incorporated, the romance writers of America, sisters in crime, all of these different author organizations. And they're pushing back at Disney. They've even got a hashtag now, Disney must pay, because apparently Alan Dean Foster is not the only one. Now, his situation has been settled. I guess there's been some resolution there last week. But you have a number of authors who are sitting there writing, writing tie-in fiction, whether it's comic books or, or novels, that are set in these universes, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, um, uh Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think I even saw Stargate get mentioned there before, and they're not getting paid their royalties. And one of these people contacted Boom Studios, which used to have the Buffy the Vampire Slayer license, and got told, well, the, the, the licenses, the royalties don't, don't shift over. I'm thinking, how does that work it's, exactly? Yeah, I, I would think if you're making money from it, that you owe royalties. I mean, I do not see any way around that, but yeah, I'd say it, it's a contractual matter. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It has to do with what, you know, if I buy your company, generally speaking, you know, you and I decide what goes in the price of the sale and all that kind of stuff. But let's say I do buy your company and I don't buy all the liabilities. Okay. Well, that means you're still responsible for them. You know, yeah. If they don't come over to me, somebody has to fulfill those obligations. So the, I, I think the interesting thing, and I'm a I'm a I'm I'm a rock and roll kind of addict, and <laughs> and so I follow royalties and royalty law related to um, you know musicians. Uh, I, I just the, the whole idea of a royalty is a wonderful idea, as far as I'm concerned. When you can do something when you're 18 or 19 years old and collect money off of it for the rest of your life, I think that's the best possible thing. I, I'd, I'd advise any any young person. Who, who is looking ahead and saying, what should I do with my life? If, if you have a chance at something that generates royalties, I say, take it, yeah. okay? Because I think that's a, it's just a great way to make a living. Uh, but on these issues, I think really what it, couple of things that strike me. Number one is we don't know what the dollar volume of this. If you take all these authors that are involved here and all these groups and say, how much money is involved? it could just be a nuisance thing to Disney. I mean, it may not add up to very much money, yeah. in, in, in which case, you know, Disney may end up settling it, even if they don't feel like they have an obligation, they may end up settling it just to make it go away, okay? But I would also think if it ever went to court, it's going to go back to the documentation that took place when they took over Lucasfilm and when they took over 20th Century Fox. What did your contract say with the artists and what does our contract say with you? And then the court's going to assign who has to pay those royalties is basically what it boils down to. Yeah. Well, um, Alan D. Foster's I, contract goes back even before the existence of Lucasfilm Limited. And know? they've settled it. Yeah, and they've, I mean, they've and, settled that. But, but in yeah. terms of... of the legal entities that have the contract, you know, Foster's goes back to, I think it was called the Star Wars Company or something at that point, the Star Wars, the Star Wars group. This is before the movies ever came out, before there was a Lucasfilm. And so, you know, it transferred from, from that company to the, to the Lucasfilm brand. So I would assume that the language in the contracts have something about assigns or heirs or, you know, however, however you put that in there that says anybody that buys this company gets all of this or, 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 or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just. Uh, no, I, you're, you're right. But I also think, you know, uh, if, if, if you, if you're into, um, if you're into music, 
I'm going to tell you a book to read. Read John Fogarty's book uh, about rock and roll, okay? Because uh, John Fogarty was the, um, you know, the lead musical guy and also the writer and the singer for Creedence Clearwater Revival. And uh, fantastic band. And this is one of those, I read a lot of these kinds of books. And this one is very authentic. You can tell that John actually wrote it. This wasn't ghost written by somebody else. Yeah. Uh, but but basically, when he was 18, 19 years old, and they were Creedence Clearwater Revival, they signed a very unfavorable contract. They basically, they didn't know any better. They thought they were getting a good deal. The problem is, is that 60 years later, he still does not collect a nickel off of the music he made with Creedence Clearwater Revival. Mm. The guy that bought that from them back then is the one who collects all the money, his estate today. And you know, that's the thing is, especially with artists, you know, they're very creative, but that doesn't mean that they're very business savvy. And it also doesn't mean that they're very legal savvy. And sometimes they enter into agreements that aren't that favorable to them and then later on regret it. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happened here because it sounds like most of these people had contracts and stuff, but whether or not those contracts, you know, moved along with you know, the transfers of ownership of the company and all that kind of stuff, those are actually legal. Those are legal decisions. Those are contractual matters. Right. And it, you know, it may have very little to do with what you thought you were signing 10, 15 years ago. Um, I just can't believe, I mean, if, if all sales ceased, yes, uh, it's, and there's no more revenue, that's one thing, but if yep. it is still making, making money, money absolutely. Have, I agree with that. How could they get beyond how could they say the royalties belong need to be paid by someone else? Well, and I've seen it mentioned the 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 thing with I, like for example with Warner Books because Warner Books doesn't exist anymore, and the license for publication of those stories transfers to a different legal entity. If Disney says, "Okay, we're going to pull all of the existing published works off the shelves," right? We do, I guess, a product recall, and then we're going to publish a new version of this through Lucasfilm publishing through Delray books, for example, or whatnot, then that's a completely new publishing license, a new, a new throughput. And maybe they don't owe royalties anymore after that. But that, that to me just seems while it might be legal, like Mary Robin at Koal says, it might be a legal thing, but it's not necessarily the moral thing. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm troubled by the possibility that Disney, I mean, it doesn't surprise me given what I've heard about the Walt Disney company over the last four or five years, but the fact that they would take advantage of people like this and it may track legally. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Mary Robinette also made the point that, you know, and like you were talking about earlier, Dan, with different elements, different divisions, not knowing what everybody else is doing. She said, we've been talking to the legal department. If we could talk to the publishing department, we could hey, get all this cleared up. That's, but but the legal people are the ones who are stymieing this process. And then you have, you know. Everybody on the outside looking in, like us, you know, you know, the armchair quarterback type thing, where we're all looking at it and saying, "Well, Disney should," even though, like you said, we don't really know all of the ins and outs and in, in what's going on. But well, artists deserve artists deserve to be paid, and yeah. uh, you know, somebody is obligated to pay those people those royalties, and uh, I, you know, absolutely agree with that. If if I was betting, I would bet that they'll end up reaching some kind of agreement with Disney and Disney will end up paying the royalties because they are the, you know, they're the surviving corporation at this point. Yeah. Now, whether or not they're obligated to do that, I don't know, but we'll wait and see. Well, and I would think that it would be a good PR move at the, at the very yeah. least, because you have, you know, over the last few months, especially, with the Mulan thing and the Gina Carano thing. I mean, Disney just continues to get egg on their face with everything not going the way it's supposed to go. And then you have the right. one thing with the Mandalorian that gets ruined because we fired Gina and, and they've got this huge blowback. But when you, when you look at 
this deal, you know, the resolution of the situation with Alan Dean Foster, that's a good move. You've got the sequel trilogy characters not on that artwork for the May the 4th. You've got the Bad Batch coming out. There's uh, uh, Gina's episode from Running Wild with Bear Grylls has now been restored to the schedule. It's going to air on May 10th on National Geographic. So fans are looking this as a win, and, you know, they're thinking, well, maybe there's some stuff going on behind the scenes that maybe Gina's going to come back, maybe Kathy Kennedy is on the way. I mean, there's all sorts of speculation on that front. But it's these little, these little moves. And if Disney were to sit there and go, you know what? Mia culpa, you're right. We looked at it again. We should be paying. Here's what we're going to do. And they and they come out and they say we we're going to make a deal. <coughs> Whereas, according to Sifwa, they're you know they're you know, they're all talk to the hand. They're they're really being uh, ha- they've described it as being reactive instead of proactive. I mean, these author organizations says we've got all the contact information for all of these authors. And somebody, like you, you're saying, Dan, there's a paper trail somewhere on the ownership there of these is. licenses. So you look up the chain of custody and we'll get you in contact with the authors and let's get this deal done. I don't, I don't understand why Disney would, would drag their feet on something like this. can't believe it's a great deal of money relative to the cost of a Probably not. I've I've seen some tie-in authors who have posted, you know, photographs of their royalty checks that they get, you know, 43 cents or five cents. Yeah. Or, you know, cost of postage is higher than the actual royalty check itself in some cases. So I would imagine That's it's not, probably not a lot. It's not uncommon. I mean, you know, um, one of the things that happens with movies and stuff is, you know, when a when an artist you know, instead of taking salary, say, says, you know, I, I'm not going to take my usual fee, but I want 2% of the movie, you know, the gross or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, 15 years later, the, the studio is still claiming they never made a nickel on the movie, you know, because because of the way they do accounting and stuff like that. I mean, instead of paying that guy his one or 2%, they're claiming that the paving of the parking lot outside mm-hmm. was charged against the movie. You know, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, it, it's sort of a way of doing business. And of course it's a tax thing too, because if they can say the movie hasn't made money in the last 20 years, although it may have been a blockbuster, then they can say, well, you know, we haven't generated any profits, so we don't have to pay any taxes. You know, you see how this goes? Yeah. It's it's a it, it's a way of doing business for some of these companies. Uh, that doesn't make it right, but it also isn't very surprising, I'd say. So, given given no that it's go, go ahead, Matt. What? Oh, well, as, there is no net, as they, yeah. <laughs> no they net. Always, always say to uh, yeah. Rock uh, James Garner about Rockford. Yeah, there, yeah, there is no there debt. Is no debt. <laughs> well, you would think though, Matt, with the with the royalties being so so low, we are assuming, you know, that it's we're not talking about a gazillion dollars here. It's going to be a low amount. You would think that Disney would just say, you know what, this is this is dropping the bucket chump change. It's going to do a lot more from the PR standpoint for us to look good on this, as opposed to fighting it. For over, you know, peanuts, basically. If you see it on the national news, it'll probably get resolved really fast. Yeah. I'd say that's true. I'd also say, though, that, you know, no matter. So you're talking about for these people who have not gotten their royalties properly, maybe for several years. So even those 43 cents a, a month adds up to something. Yeah. And then if they pay the royalties, it also acknowledges that we need to pay them in the future as well. So, you know, and, you know, I I just, I'm not, I'm not arguing on their behalf. I'm just saying, even if it's not a large amount of money, it does, it entitles the, the creative people to keep getting money into the future. And that may be part of the issue as well. And we just don't know the numbers. So we're not in a very good position to to comment on how valid it is. I do agree with you. It looks bad on Disney. No question. (sighs) Fun and games. It's all fun and games till somebody gets (laughs) their eye poked out, right? (laughs) Uh, Speaking of games, 
Um, let's, this is something, Dan, you brought this to our attention here earlier this week. Let me, let me, uh, pull this one up. Uh, where is it? Um, Megan plays. This is okay. We're going to, we're going to go kind of, kind of sideways on this one here. Megan plays Megan litter. Uh, her ID on on YouTube is Megan Plays, and it, this is uh, this is Forbes from January twenty seventh. Uh, diversified her bu- her business to bring in millions, and apparently she's playing Rob- Roblox Roblox three point three million subscribers on her main YouTube account, over one point four million followers on the Rob- Roblox platform. She is without a doubt one of the most popular content creators focusing on the game, but she's also a game developer and she's turned this, but she's only been at this for a couple of years and she's making bank. How, how do we, how do we copy this? How do we replicate this model here, guys? Which of course is what every business wants to know. You know, how did she do that? You know, it almost reminds me, and my my grandkids have gotten a little older now, but there was a few years ago, if they'd spend the weekend with us, a good part of the weekend would be watching Paw Patrol on TV. You know, they have, I want to say, 200 episodes at 30 minutes a piece, plus mm-hmm. they sell all the, you know, you go into any of the department stores and there's the, you know, there's the cars, there's the dogs, there's the everything. I mean, and, and I read an article about the guy and it seems to me like he was in a Scandinavian country or something, the guy who created this and it was worth billions. I mean, it was billions. And um, she, she's nowhere near that at this point, but what she did, I think, is create, um, you know, first of all, a persona so that the kids like watching her on YouTube. And then she created some games and they're targeted for young kids. I mean, they're targeted for the 10 and younger kind of crowd. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Roblox, as I understand it, is just a platform for gaming. Now, I'm not a gaming person, but you go on there, you, you know, you choose avatars, you choose games, you play these games, you pay to play these games. And, uh, she's created a couple of games and, and she's worth millions. I saw the other day, they were thinking about taking it public perhaps. (laughs) And they, they had estimated the value of her enterprise to be $40 million or more. (laughs) It's just incredible. And she's a, she's, she's a young married person i mean she and her husband and i think eight employees now so really kind of interesting Toyo will be calling yeah that's Uh, crazy roblox itself went public just a couple of months ago at uh, about 70 bucks a share i don't know what their market cap is i'm looking at it here but uh, but that game's been around for a long time i'm sure it could have been long forgotten but it had a solid base of kids that have been playing it their whole life and they've developed another one, I guess, uh, that's coming out as well. And it's targeted for the same group of kids. And, and those, those kids, you know, they, it's kind of funny. I tell people in my business, I say, I never set out to help retired people, uh, but that's who I help because they're the ones that have all the money. Yeah. And, okay. and it's the same with, with what she has done. She has targeted a group of kids that don't have their own money, but they do have their <laughs> parents' money. Uh-huh. Yeah. And parents will spend, and so she she found a real profitable niche. Plus, you know, there's the added advantage that she doesn't come under fire for doing hot tub streams or anything like That's that. That's I mean, right. You know, it's it's good wholesome family fun. You know, she doesn't have to worry about that kind of thing. That would be a career ender for her. <laughs> That's or, right. A completely different kind of career, I guess. Right, but. You know, I it just it just amazes me now that we're living in an age where the technology has democratized the creative process so much to the point where everybody's got a channel, everybody's got a shtick, everybody's got a niche, and some of them hit just like that and they and they just take off and they you you've got 1 million subscribers in a month. And you're making all this money and you get the, you get the, Dis, you know, the development deal with Disney and the Netflix thing and the comic book and the whatever. And then you have other channels that are doing the same kind of thing and they don't, they don't take off for whatever reason. They don't find their audience. I mean, 
we've been doing this now for two years here, solid straight. And we're still, you know, very, very, very small drop in the bucket, which is fine. You know, the people that find us and, and watch us appreciate what we do, but there's not enough of them. Uh, but it's like, it, you just find that one little nugget of the formula for how it works, and there is no such thing, and that's the frustrating part. You, you need a good scandal. So. <laughs> <laughs> a, good, a good scandal is one that that moves you up in the world. That's yeah, failing upwards, right? We need to do that. But I also, you know, what I always told people, and, you know, I always tell people to go to business school, you know, and, and I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and stuff, and a lot of them are very creative people, and they don't really have the patience to go to business school. Yeah. Uh, but what I tell them is, you know, there are a few people out there. They're like the most popular kid in the class. Whatever it is, he's got it, and he's going to attract people all his life. And you and I can work as hard as we want, and we're never going to have it the same way he's got it, you sure. know? Business school is for all the rest of us, <laughs> okay? It's, it's, it's for those it's of us. I mean. You know, I've, I've had a successful business for a number of years and I, you know, I, I, I've got a lot to be grateful for, but at the same time, it's not, I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not, you know, what I'm saying is I've, I've had success within the realm of, of what I was working in, but not to the scale that some people have. And I've worked awfully damn hard too, yeah. you know, but that's what I'm saying is, a lot of, so she hit, bless her heart. I'm, I couldn't be happier for her and her husband and, and for all the people who are buying her products and stuff. Well, but if and, you and I set out to replicate what she's doing, yeah. I'm not sure we could do it. Well, and, and I want to be clear that I'm not making light of what she's done in terms of no, absolutely either. Not. I mean, something like this, you don't just, you know, overnight success is not a, a real thing. It takes, you're, you're working day in and day out for months and years before you're the overnight success. Yeah, so yeah. her success and all, finding all of these subscribers and getting all of this money with, with the, the, the games and the stuff that's taken a lot of time for her. And I can appreciate, you know, the, the grind because that's a, that's a piece of this that I think gets glossed over a lot with a lot of these people that, are sudden hits and like, well, no, it's not sudden. There's nothing sudden about it. So I don't want to try and take away from no, that. That's, I that's absolutely that. right. But I also, I, I also would like to replicate what she's doing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, she just stuck with it. Yeah. And, you know, changed a few things and found something that worked, started growing. You know, in my business, I tell people uh, the story, one of the stories I talk about, because we do financial advice for people and investments. And of course, one of the most successful people in that realm is Dave Ramsey. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so a lot of people come into my office and they say, well, Dave says this, or Dave says that. And I say, well, you know, I've taught Dave stuff. He does say that, but it doesn't apply to you. And let me explain why, yeah. you know, because it doesn't fit you. But what Dave did better than anybody else, truthfully, is he delivered a radio audience, okay? Mm -hmm. that, that if you look at talk radio as, as, a, as a business, mm -hmm. most talk radio listeners are men age 50 and older. That is the truth. Whether it's sports radio, news radio, anything else, most of them are older men, okay? Yeah. What Dave did was he created a radio show for young families. And it was a spectacularly popular show. And so all these stations picked up Dave because on Saturday afternoon from two to four, there'd be young families listening instead of old men. And that's where his success comes from, is, is, is from delivering a different demographic. Right. So those are the little tweaks that, you know, you and I, we, you know, who would have thought that you could make millions of dollars by selling games to seven-year-old kids? I wouldn't right? have thought so. Yeah. But she got it. Well, you know, and, and you know, and you look at all of the different YouTube channels for example that that do the same kind of thing similar to what we do. And one of the one of the people that we look at Midnight's Edge is you know, a lot of these guys are a little bit more edgier, I guess you could say. Um, you know, they they like to criticize and and go after whatever the hot topics of the day are a little bit more uh, 
a little bit more vociferously than we do, I guess you could say. And I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, you know, just in comparison to make an analogy, they're more the punk rock radio and we're the we're the talk radio i guess you could say because we're not we're not diving into the drama as much we we kind of right. kind of pull back a little bit so we've got a little bit of a different approach to how everything we cover things and maybe to our detriment whether we're not diving into the outrage media or whatnot but i think you know we have something unique here and one of these days, a million people will find us, and then well, we'll be able truth to, to that, though. pay people. <laughs> so, no, no, that's exactly yeah. what you were just saying. I mean, it's exactly right. Is that you know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to fill that niche, and you know, um, there, there's nothing that says that they're more successful than you, or that five years from now they're going to be more successful than you. Right. Yeah. You just keep doing what you do and get better at it all the time. Well, and, and we look at everything that we do here. I mean, we produce seven, seven TV shows. We've got the website. We post articles, you know, news articles and reviews and whatnot. And we do it all, you know, it's all volunteer. We do it with very limited resources. You know, we're on webcams and, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm looking, you know, Mindy and I talk about this a lot. And I look at her and just think what we could do if we had money. <laughs> you know, I mean, because we look at all of this and we're like, I, we could do so much more. Not, not that I've got the time to do it, but you know, you know, maybe I could buy, buy my cloning tank, and uh, and and accomplish a couple of things. Oh well, well. Add, add one person a week. I mean, that's well. Yeah. That's why I tell. Uh, I work with some musicians, and I just say, you know, add, every time you play, you're going to get one person that's going to come back and bring a friend. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the other thing. You know, I look at look at the audience that we do have. And I'm reminded of Charlie Daniels' autobiography. The title of his book is, you know, Don't Play to the Empty Seats. And his, his philosophy is he, you know, I, I heard him talking on, on Hannity one time. He's, his, his basic philosophy is, you know, you don't worry about the people that don't show up because they're not there. You can't, you can't please the people who aren't in the room. And you've got to focus completely on the audience that does show up because they're there for you, for your show. So you got to give them your best. And it's a great book. And there's another management piece he gives in there that I just think is spectacular. And I tell people this all the time. He talks about, cause he had a 50 year career in music and live music all the time mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And he said, so he was talking about the agony of losing people in the band. You know, that this guy comes to you and says, I just can't stand the road anymore gotta go and he has to go out and look for somebody else and, and what he says about that i think is is one of the most telling things in business he said i never once got a new band member that wasn't better than the one who left <laughs> never yeah. once he said in 50 years mm -hmm. i always replaced whoever left by somebody who was better and i think that is that's a lot of the grind Mm -hmm. is that you get better as you go forward, no yeah. matter what, even if it doesn't seem like you're getting better, you are getting better because you're attracting better people around you. You know what you're doing. You're able to do things better. Um, that's, that's another great book for people who like music. I think I'll read those both. Both are both. They're good, good books. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much for your time and insights today. That's going to do it. We're past our one o'clock. So, uh, so we'll do that. Um, Let's let's circle back at some point and talk about shorting stocks. Why don't okay. we? And sure. and and talk about that. And then I've got a couple of things I want to talk about uh, off the air here after we get done. So stick around there. And those of you who are here uh, with us live, thanks very much for being here and uh, contributing your thoughts. If you are catching us in a replay, you can leave a comment. You can always send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. Over the weekend, we dropped a new episode of Foreign Bodies. Tim and Leslie were talking about the foreign horror films that were nominated in the Chainsaw Awards. So we do invite you to check that out as well. And uh, let's see here. We've got uh, tonight a brand new episode of the H2O podcast. Mr. Harvey and I will be talking about alternate histories and multiverses. 
So uh, you want to check that out. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. And then, of course, we're back here tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. Remember, in the meantime, there are four lights. Thank you for being here, folks. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 